Hey everyone, welcome to the Christ and Coffee uh, podcast. I'm Jeremy, this is Haig, and we're with our good friend, Dr. Matt Silverman. It's a joy to have him with us here this morning, but uh, first, most importantly, I'm having my coffee. Haig, what do you got? I got iced coffee today. I'm mixing things yeah. up. Yeah, and I think I heard uh, Matt has hot chocolate. Yeah, today felt like a hot chocolate day. Yeah, that's awesome. The Christ so and first... hot chocolate podcast. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's the first for the... Uh, first for the pod so it's good to have you with us um matt you're uh, a good friend of ours uh, i've known you since uh college i think in your ucla days um mm-hmm. was, uh, thinking about when i first met you and uh gosh it must have been united when i was in uh, the college group is that what it was yeah yeah um, i started at ucla in 2002 so yeah. i probably joined the college group sometime in 2003 i think yeah yeah, and that's about when I graduated high school to go into college. So yeah, I think you were like a upperclassman and I was just joining the college group. And so it was cool to get to know you there. You lived it in uh, LA for quite a while and uh, mm-hmm. when I was out there. So um, we've been friends for a long time and uh, you work in medical diagnostics now. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But um, hi, when did you meet Matt? When was the first time you met Matt? I believe it was the same time I... Uh... I think it was the same time around when I met you. So I'm like the East Coast guy in this podcast. And then there was this <laughs> summer where I did an internship at a church in Hollywood. And, uh, and then I started meeting the Armenian evangelical community on the West Coast. And I remember uh, meeting the two of you separately. But I definitely was really uh, fond of you guys being very like, welcoming and talking to me. Um, so I appreciate that. Cool. That was a good character plug. We're both uh, welcoming and hospitable people. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. And then now we're all on a <laughs> podcast right now. And now we have yeah. Chicago, uh, San Francisco area, and uh, New York all, all, all together with technology. Yeah, man. That's we got America think covered. That. We got America covered right now. Yeah, <laughs> all the coasts. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so Matt, why don't we just start? Why don't you give us a little background? Um, what are you, what's your formal title at San Francisco State right now? Yeah, so I teach in the clinical laboratory science program. Uh, I'm one of the faculty there. I handle the clinical chemistry uh, and uh, contemporary issues in clinical laboratory science stuff. We teach the folks that do all the medical diagnostic work in the hospital lab. So whenever a doctor orders blood work or something like that, we're the folks, we teach the folks that actually do those tests. So when they collect a blood sample, it goes to the back lab. These are the folks in the back lab that are doing the tests, reporting out the results, interpreting the results, all that stuff. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I think you, you did your master's and doctoral work at UCLA. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so what got you into this field? Yeah. So uh, I'd say I, I first got interested in the medical field uh, in high school. I was in ninth grade uh, and I got di- on Thanksgiving Day, actually, believe it or not, I was diagnosed with uh, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. So pretty, pretty advanced cancer. Uh, pick a body part. And I had a fully, I had over two dozen tumors, I think, in my body. We don't know the exact number because by the time they got to the seventh or eighth one, my mom just fainted. Um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, a year of chemotherapy uh, and I pulled through on the other side. And uh, that got me kind of interested in the medical field. I went on to UCLA and I went into chemical engineering. It was called chemical engineering at the time. Later, they changed the name to chemical and biomolecular engineering because the more names you have in the title of the major, the, the cooler it <laughs> yeah. is, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so my master's research was all in uh, biofuels production, metabolism, genetic engineering, bacteria, stuff like that. 
my PhD research, I transitioned into studying cancer metabolism, doing cancer imaging. And then we were studying uh, pancreatic cancer and prostate cancer and new PET imaging method, methods to uh, detect and monitor those cancers. Uh, I finished that in 2014. And a couple months later, a friend of mine from the church up here, the Calvary Church up here, approached me and said, hey, we got someone retiring in our program a couple of months. We need someone that can teach the chemistry, that can teach the lab management, that can teach some of the statistics stuff. Are you available? I said, sure, that sounds like fun. So I started uh, full-time at San Francisco State in January of 2015, and I've been teaching there since. Wow. Well, I'm just curious, um, like back all the way at the beginning of that story with your cancer, was, were there no signs of that? Like, did you just go in for a regular old test and all of a sudden found out you were riddled with cancer tumors or? I had been having back pain for months and we mm. didn't know what it was. We couldn't figure it out. We went to chiropractors, we went to this or that, nothing was really helping. And eventually we just kind of gave up and said, let's go in for an MRI and see what we find. And the MRI showed three tumors on my spine. The largest one had actually eaten away my L3 vertebrae. So oh I had God. All, like it was, you know, it had been reduced to like this tiny little triangle. It was barely there. Um, so that was what that had been what was causing the pain. The, the, the oncologist had never seen something like that before, a tumor actually eating away at the bone. Um, but uh, and, and they were originally planning on like cutting out some of my rib and grinding it up into a bone paste and like putting that air to rebuild the the vertebrae but then it just kind of started it just grew back on its own for the most part so i we ended up not needing to do that man the human body what a wild <laughs> what a wild story wow your your vertebrae regrew yeah it, uh, re regenerated that's that's crazy that's wild um thank god you're okay i mean what a what a story yeah what yeah. a story um, it was, but you know, it teaches you a lot of how to deal with suffering. Like looking back, it was suffering that told me something was wrong to begin with. Uh, and I think that's mm -hmm. sometimes true in our lives too. I think something about the suffering we see in the world tells us that there's something broken and something missing mm -hmm. that we need that we don't have. Mm -hmm. um, and suffering was also part of the healing. Like the chemotherapy was worse than the disease itself, but that was the process of removing what was toxic and dangerous in me was going through that suffering that removed it. So, right. Right. Yeah. We tend to shy away from anything that smacks of discomfort and suffering in our culture. And then this is just a sample of the Christian, the Christian realization that suffering is actually where God often meets us most and redeems those moments. Yeah. That's beautiful. Any, um, any, any uh, words of wisdom about just people are suffering right now with, uh, finances with losing work, uh, people, yeah. uh, especially in New York, getting the coronavirus and elsewhere. Uh, any, any just words of wisdom on, on people who are in the midst of suffering, who are listening to the podcast, any words of advice to give it to them? Yeah. I mean, yesterday, in my last update that I put out about uh, COVID, I was sharing from Romans chapter five, um, uh, that beginning section of suffering, producing perseverance and perseverance, character and character hope. And one of the conclusions that I shared with that from that is if hope is the destination then suffering is necessarily the path the the journey um mm -hmm. there's no getting to that hope that character development that that person that we need to become without that path of suffering and we're all mm -hmm. going to go through this i i mean we've been 
blessed in a sense, I don't know if it's blessed or cursed here in the US, that we really go through most of our lives with very minimal suffering. Like I'm used to, you know, I for a long time I've gone on missions trips to Haiti, uh, out kind of in the middle of a, the jungle there, an orphanage. You look at the people there who are living in homes made out of dirt and garbage, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the the kind of suffering that we're we're used to complaining about here in the U.S. doesn't compare uh, to some of the suffering that's around the world. All suffering is temporary. Uh, we will go through these seasons in life. They're guaranteed. The question is, what kind of person are we going to become by the end of it? Mm-hmm. Um, if we use these moments and these seasons well, we will become the person that God intended us to become. And this mm-hmm. is going to shape our character into that eternal person, right? Because these bodies are temporary, but you know, our souls are eternal. I'm in pain every, because of what happened to my back. I'm in pain pretty much every day. So I'm used to kind of a, a constant feeling of suffering, but every day it's a reminder that this body of mine is temporary. And mm. what really matters is the eternal thing coming after. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I want to now transition uh, now about just talking specifically about the coronavirus. And uh, I have a very difficult question to ask you. Uh, what is the coronavirus? Like, <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of different viruses that uh, categories of viruses that infect humans. Uh, probably the ones we're most com- commonly used to getting would be like rhinoviruses. They cause the common cold. Uh, you've got influenza viruses cause the flu. Uh, coronaviruses are a whole group of uh, viruses. Some of them cause the common cold. I think about one fourth of the com- common uh, cases of common cold in a given year are coronaviruses. Uh, the MERS outbreak from like 10 years ago, that was a coronavirus. The SARS outbreak from 2003, that was a coronavirus. Uh, so this is just, this particular coronavirus is just another, another SARS outbreak in the latest, this is the third one in the last 20 years. Um, this is less deadly than the previous two. I think the case fatality rate for the MERS uh, SARS virus was something like 35%. And that one still actually pops up in the Middle East from time to time. Uh, And I think the fatality rate for the first SARS virus was somewhere around 10%, something like that. This one is way lower than those. Uh, The tricky thing is uh, there are most, it seems like most patients have very few symptoms uh, and still become contagious. So that's made this one uh, virtually impossible to contain. Uh, so in terms of uh, lethality, it's it's safer, but in terms of how much it spreads, usually for a SARS virus, the symptoms are so bad that it's obvious who has it. And you know to quarantine them and keep them separated from everyone else. This one, we don't have those obvious symptoms and it's made it trickier to contain. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That kind of a- answers my question because I remember SARS, that was back in the, the what? Hmm, 2003, yeah, yeah. Yeah, early 2000s, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I remember that being in the news, but never to the extent, obviously, that we're in now. I mean, this is unprecedented. And so it was always kind of strange. It's like, this is a similar strain of virus. Why is this being so exploded in proportion? And it sounds like, you know, it's because of the sort of the silence of it, where it kind of works under the radar without many people knowing that they might even have it. Um, yeah. 
I think um, maybe we could speak to the origins of this. I know that it, this specific strain developed um, in a region of China, Wuhan, and I know they trace it somewhat to um, to bats. So that's how does... What we, yeah, that's okay, what we think. So we study viruses in all kinds of animal populations all the time because we're always looking out for these jumps from animals to human. The most deadly diseases are always the ones that jump from animals to humans because they're entering a new, uh, the way a disease works is it wants to survive in its host. It act, most diseases actually don't want to kill their host. They want someplace to live. Um, mm. So they only really become deadly when they jump from one species to another. So that's why we study virus species in animals because we want to be keeping an eye on them in case they do make that jump to humans. Um, we first identified this, uh, we think it's coming from these bats. We first identified this uh, bat coronavirus back in 2015 in this part of China. Um, and so they studied it back then uh, and they recognized that it was very similar to the previous SARS outbreak. So they said this looks, the, the genet genetically it looks very similar. Do you think it can make the jump? Would it be deadly? So they tested it out back then and sure enough, yeah, it was capable of infecting human cells. It was capable of causing disease in mice. So they said, we have to keep an eye out for this one and watch for this one. And sure enough, five years later, it finally manages, manages to make the jump. Yeah. Um, so Could, the, the way, oh, sorry. How does it make the jump? Does it? Yeah, does, yeah. Yeah. Because I, so, I was going to say, there's a lot of people who, who have said that, you know, this is traced back to like ingesting animals, like eating bats or eating, like, is that how this is? transmitted it doesn't seem like that would be the case but you're the professional so how does it work <laughs> yeah so so all of all viruses uh, like you uh, around your cells they're all you know little protein receptors like little antennas that are sticking out um and each one has a slightly different shape a slightly different function and a virus uh on on itself it also has little antennas that are designed to look for a spot to bind into a cell and they'll find something like a, a key that they'll fit and as soon as they find that fit, then they absorb into the cell and infect it. Um, and we just have some of these uh, receptors in common with animal cells. Um, in this case, this virus uses uh, the ACE2 receptor to get into cells, which is present in a lot of our cells. It's similar to the cells in animals. So all you need is an animal that's infected with that virus that's got some, that virus around it. And all you need is you, you're, you've touched it and you touch your face. You do something that gives it access into your body. Um, and if it, enough of the virus gets through and it gets through your body's initial defenses, because your body has a ton of surface level protection against viruses. When you get enough virus that can eventually slip through that, that's when you can get an infection. At that point, the virus may or may not be well adapted to replicate in a human cell. So it may take it a while to start replicating and develop some mutation to replicate a little bit better. And then eventually it, just, it gets to the point where it can spread from humans to humans. So this would be contact with the animals, not necessarily like ingestion, but it could just be like being present around these animals, them, yeah. them being like, I know that they mentioned that there was near, like where they think it sort of originated was near a marketplace. So it could be people handling them or that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. in theory, you've got an animal that's uh, infected with a virus. They've got virus on them because it's in the, their saliva. It's, it, it's, and so that gets out. You touch the animal, now you got virus on your fingers, and now you're, you're touching your face, and that's how, or you touch your eye or something, and that, that gives your, the virus a chance in. Um, there, there's also reports about potentially this happening in a lab. Is that something that could be dismissed, or it's, it's still like I, there, there's a lot of uncertainty? 
I would really doubt that this came from a lab. And the reason is this, normally, as soon as a researcher identifies a new virus or creates a new virus, sometimes we create viruses to test them, the very first thing they do is publish that virus's genome. So the idea that a lab had been studying this thing and it somehow got out and it would have gotten out like sometime in November uh, into the population. And then that they went two months into like the genome for this virus wasn't published until early January. So the idea that they went that long with a virus that they didn't know had gotten out and had never published the genome, that's, that would be pretty unusual. So mm -hmm. uh, we study, uh, like all the people that study viruses for, the, for a living, right? Uh, we've got a whole database of virus genomes from viruses all over the world, and we can search them in an instant. To, we get a new virus out, we go through that whole list, and what does this virus look like? Everyone who does this for a living says the closest thing we can find to this is that uh, population of bat coronaviruses that was circulating in the, in the Wuhan area. Um, it's not identical to them, but it's similar enough that they think it's somehow related to them. Whether it jumped from bats to another animals to humans or it, was, it mutated enough in bats and then jumped directly to humans, we don't know that. But of all the viruses we've studied all around the world, those are the ones that it looks the most like. Wow. Just for just for clarification purposes, the genome is the genetic makeup of a specific virus, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, yeah. the genome for this virus is thirty thousand letters long, uh, and we've characterized each part of it. We've studied each part of part of it. We've compared it to all the other viruses around the world. Um, so, yeah, wh when they say, "Oh, they," you know, because it is true in the in that Wuhan uh, in these virology labs, they do create you know, mutant viruses to study. They created a, a version of this bat coronavirus to study in mice because they wanted to see, can it actually cause disease, right? So they uh, took parts of it, they put it into a mouse virus and they studied it in, that, in, a, in a virus that's designed to infect mice and, and not humans because right. it's kind of unethical to do those kinds of experiments yeah. in humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this Darn virus ethics. is not... Yeah. So, <laughs> so th I mean, this virus is not that virus. Like you can compare their genomes and they're just, they're different. Um, yeah. So we we think this is very closely related to the the virus that was circulating that bat population, right, right. And the kind of the kind of testing or production of genetic material like this, um, everybody does this, right? This isn't just like a Chinese laboratory doing this. The United States, we're all doing this kind of thing too. Yeah, it's for research it, purposes. Yeah, people get a little. Uh, it, you have to be a very special lab. Like there are different levels of biohazard labs. Um, uh, this would be like biohazard level three level uh, type work. Biohazard level four is like this disease could kill all of mankind if it gets out. Like, so, <laughs> yeah, right. So there's only yeah. a couple of biohazard level four labs in the whole world. Gotcha, but th gotcha. That's always the stuff in the movies, right? The scientists created something only to discover that it destroyed all yeah. mankind. So yeah, we're yeah, always yeah. looking for that. Plot, what have right? we done? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's like there's like a funny meme about like uh, every bad movie begins with uh, people not listening <laughs> to the scientists, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I find it fascinating that like uh, like this the coronavirus got real uh, the Wednesday when Tom Hanks got the coronavirus and when the NBA suspended uh, its season, and it, it just boggles my mind how uh, we as a culture instead of listening to the scientists, we listen to celebrities. Uh, or, or the or the, or the sports icons, um, so I, I'm actually happy that the podcast format is actually developing into a a, a popular platform because you can't uh, talk about this issue in a soundbite. You have to really talk through it. 
Um, and I'm glad we're having you on, on, on as a guest to just share your expertise. So uh, we talk about the origins of it. We talk about the labs, um, but let's just go transition to what happens when someone gets the virus. What, what's going on in the body? Uh, wh why are certain people getting it uh, yeah. and it's showing symptoms while others aren't? Uh, if you could just yeah. speak more upon that, like what happens when you get into contact with this thing? Yeah, so you won't like this answer, but we're not entirely, the truth is we're not entirely sure. Uh, the, the doorway that this virus uses to get into a cell is present in a lot of cells in our body. Uh, we think the primary route of exposure is through the upper respiratory tract. So around our, uh, you know, the, the top level of our, our respiratory, like nose, throat, that part, we do have those receptors open, so can it infect those cells? If that's where the infection stays, then we're probably okay. Um, it, it doesn't do that much damage up there, we don't think. If it gets down into the lower lungs, like it migrates all the way down there, that's when you start having the real respiratory problems. Uh, so uh, it, it starts infecting a cell, right? And it replicates inside that cell and eventually that cell dies and then it releases a lot more virus and they go on to infect other cells. So you can imagine killing the cells in your lungs one by one and all first it's one and then it's a thousand and then it's 10,000. Eventually those add up and the, the lungs start getting really damaged. Um, what we're realizing now that we didn't really think about when this virus first came out is this ACE2 receptor is present in many cells throughout our body. So once this, if this thing could get in the blood, this is present in all the cells that line our blood vessels, the, the endothelium. Uh, so once it starts infecting those, then, it's can, uh, then we think it can start causing these vascular issues. We're starting to see patients coming out with the blood clots and strokes and stuff like that. Um, this ACE2 receptor that this virus is binding to, that actually has a physiological role in the body. It's actually important for us. So with all this virus going around, clogging up those receptors and killing cells that are using those receptors, we think it's causing uh, not just the lung problems that you traditionally think of with a SARS virus in a respiratory illness, but also uh, thrombosis, blood clotting problems throughout the body. So we think in some patients, at least a fraction of the patients, that's what's happening. Uh, the crazy thing is there is no typical patient for this thing. Um, mm -hmm. you, get, you have two people who seem fairly identical. Uh, you do CT scans of their lungs, and they have two different versions of infection with them. One is your more traditional SARS virus in infection where you've got uh, what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, where you've got all that fluid building up in the lungs and that's what's interfering with the breathing. But then you've also got what seems to be coming from the blood where it's infecting these blood, uh, the blood vessels, causing these blood clots. And then rather than the fluid building up in the lungs, it's actually blood clots that are building up in the lungs, interfering with our ability to absorb oxygen from the air. Hmm. Uh, and it's, there's not, we, right now we don't have the ability to accurately predict wh which direction a patient's going to go. Um, and the treatment for either one of those directions is different. That's what's making it tricky. Um, mm. More hospitals now are starting to put their patients on blood thinners on the idea that if it's primary blood cl clots that are causing these strokes and causing these, uh, these respiratory issues, if we put them on a blood thinner to reduce the blood clots forming, that might be the key that keeps these patients out of the hospital. We're not entirely sure, but we, coming through the month of April, coming out of April, that's the lesson that we came out with, that we need hmm. to treat some more, more of these patients with blood thinners and see how that goes. 
So you mentioned it's the A2 receptors that are really the key that, yeah, that ACE2, sort of. ACE, yeah, ACE2, ACE2, oh, like the car, okay. ACE. Yeah, yeah, okay, ACE2. So these ACE2 receptors then are like the, the gateway to the body, to the cell systems, to, okay. So was that the case in the other um, coronaviruses like SARS, MERS, the common I, I know it was the case in uh, MERS, right? And uh, there's at least one other common cold coronavirus. Virology is not my specialty, so I don't know the ones that each of them use. I know that the MERS virus uses this same receptor, and I, I believe there's another common cold coronavirus that uses this one. I don't right. know if this is unique to coronaviruses or if there are other viruses that use it too. Um, that's not really, my specialty is more on like the blood sure. diagnostic side than that side, but sure. this isn't the first virus to use that receptor right. to get into a cell. And I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, everything on the news keeps indicating that for some reason, mysteriously, really young children and kids don't seem to be at risk for, um, I, I don't know if it's whether they're at risk for contracting it or just at risk for developing symptoms. Yeah, um, we don't, so is there any research on that or any indication of what's going on there? Yeah, so definitely kids are not getting symptoms with this thing. It's very, very rare. Um, whether or not they are getting infected and they're contagious, we don't know that yet. Um, I did find a case of a, of a six-month-old infant that was studied in China where no symptoms at all, but they tested its, its saliva, its, its throat for uh, the virus, and the virus levels were super high in it. So that baby would have been contagious, but had no symptoms at all. Um, if the primary problem that this uh, virus is, caught is causing is actually the thrombosis, the problem with our blood vessels and the clotting, in theory, the patients that would be most susceptible to this disruption of the ACE2 receptor would be patients with hypertension, uh, patients with diabetes, patients with, congest uh, with uh, heart issues, cardiovascular mm -hmm. issues, stuff like that. And those are the patients that we're actually seeing the most in the hospitals right now. We're not even seeing, like, we were expecting COPD patients, asthma patients, and smokers and stuff like that. And we are seeing those patients, but it's much more of the hypertension, of the hypertension, mm -hmm. high blood pressure patients. In theory, this would not be as disruptive in a kid. They have healthier vascular system than in an adult. So if this is the primary problem that this is causing that might explain why kids don't develop symptoms and don't seem to have a problem with it but adults do um, mm. we also don't know if there's a genetic susceptibility component to it um, mm. interesting so why is one person super sick and another is there a genetic difference between those two you know these are these are the questions that we're asking that we're hopefully going to find get the answers to in a couple months but uh, I mean, we are fortunate that kids don't seem to come down with serious cases of this thing because, you know, that would just make it even much more of a, a nightmare to deal with. Um, so we're, we're still identifying who the high-risk populations are. But right now, we're leaning towards older diabetic patients, hypertension patients. Those are the ones that we need, really need to watch out for for these next few months. And can you just give insight on testing? Like, what is the testing process like? Uh, what's going to look like for your moving forward is should everyone get tested? Uh, what's yeah. the best way to streamline that? Yeah. So there are a lot of different tests that we use for a virus like this. Uh, the very first one that we started to use because it's the easiest one to put together is actually testing for the virus genetic material. Um, so this is, uh, you, you think of your DNA virus. This virus actually uses RNA. It doesn't use DNA, but the same basic concept. 
what they do is when the virus has infected you, you know, it's breaking out, it's infected a cell and then it lyses the cell and it starts leaking out. You take a swab like to the back of the throat or to the, the back of the nose uh, and you collect a sample of that saliva or whatever you got back there. Um, and then you test that for the RNA of the virus. And if you test that and it's positive, and this is an RNA that's unique to the virus, then you know that person is actively infected or they're recently recovering. You don't know if they're infectious technically because the virus could be dead. Like all you know is you're detecting its genetic material. You don't know if it's alive, capable of infecting anything or anything, but you know that the person actively had the infection. And we think that is detectable within about five days of a person being affected. So you get infected for five days, you will test negative. You test a person, no matter how you test them, you're not gonna see anything at all. After about five days, you do that and you'll start to see virus uh, RNA there. And th that will last through the course of the infection until the body fights the virus off. And then once mm. the body has successfully beaten the virus, then that, that, vi that genetic material starts to disappear because there's no longer virus left infecting cells. And so after uh, some patients, it's taking two, three, even four weeks for that virus genetic material to disappear. So we don't know if that means they're infectious for four weeks or they're infectious for like one week and the rest of it, it's just dead virus back there. We're not sure yet. So that's the initial test that we all started doing. Uh, then there is what we're starting to do now, antibody testing. Um, and that's where you are testing for the antibodies that your body produces as it starts to fight off the virus. And you can think of there, there's two main antibodies that we look for. There's like the short-term one and the long-term one. Um, it's IgM and IgG. Those are, those are the two. So the short-term one we think starts popping up about a week after you're infected, something like that. And that's uh, your body has a whole set of immune uh, cells in it that all have different roles. And very early on, your body recognizes that there's something wrong and it finds a match, an, uh, an antibody match that allows it to start fighting this virus. And in the short term, that's the antibody that your, that's what your body is using to fight it. Then you've got the long-term one that's more associated with your long-term immunity. Um, and that we think should peak sometime around four months after infection. So that should start showing wow. up within a couple of weeks. And then... Uh, at least for the previous SARS virus, it peaked after about four months and then stayed up for a couple of years. And that is usually what we associate with long-term immunity. Um, hmm. So we can test for either of those viruses to tell for an IgM, that means that it's a recent infection. If it's IgG, but no IgM, that means it was probably infection from many weeks ago that the patient has since recovered from. That's what we think. Um, but we haven't had enough cases to test yet to really uh, confirm that. The problem is when these tests first come out, uh, normally for a test like that, you would, this, you would do a ton of accuracy testing ahead of time. And you'd have a bunch of known patients and you'd have a bunch of unknown patients. You do the test in both of them and you'd figure out the exact profile. Because this was such a unique situation and we were so desperate, the FDA basically gave everyone the green light to just go ahead and we're basically field testing these things. So before you would have to do all of this testing ahead of time and give it to, and you show it to the FDA and the FDA looks at it and says, all right, this is a good test. This is a bad test. You're allowed to do this one. Because we were so desperate, the FDA kind of just threw its hands up in the air. It's like, all right, you guys, uh, as, okay, long as, go. looks, as long as it looks good, go for it. And, and which is good and bad, right? It means we don't yet know which of these antibody tests are the most accurate ones. Um, mm. and that can be a problem with a really rare virus. Um, 
So like imagine this, you've got a test that's 95% accurate, which sounds really good, right? 95% accuracy, that should be good. But imagine you've got a disease that's only affecting 1% of the population. I test 1,000 people. It infects 1% of the population, so I expect 10 people to come back. They've got the thing, right? That's 1% of 1,000. But the test is only 95% accurate, which means I'm going to get like 50 people testing positive who weren't actually, who don't actually have the antibody hmm. because 5% of those tests come back incorrectly. Hmm. So out of the 60 results that I get, 10 of them are right and 50 of them are wrong, hmm. which, which is, and we don't know because we haven't had enough time to test them yet. For some of these, we don't know what that accuracy is. If the accuracy is 99.9%, .9%, then we're all right. But if it's only 98, 97% and only one, and less than 1% of the population has it, uh, the antibody test might not be that useful yet. And it's not until you get more of the population infected that they start becoming useful. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Uh, so those are the two main tests we're looking at now. There are other tests for viruses, like antigen testing, where you actually test for the proteins of the virus rather than uh, the DNA of them. Uh, but right now, it's mostly antibodies and genetic testing that we're looking for those. And neither of those would be detecting the virus within like the first couple of days of contracting. Yeah, that we have yeah. no way of detecting a virus that early. And neither of these tests actually tell you if a person's infectious. That's, mm. that's another yeah. problem because you could have a virus in you, but it's dead virus, so I'm not capable of infecting anyone. Mm. Um, and that's in any virus, correct? That's not just yeah. this virus, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. any virus, so. Mm. Now, we spoke earlier that we already have a genome map of this, we already know the, the genetic structure of it, which means I think we would be able to then develop a vaccine for it, right? Well, so it's not, uh, so yes, the answer is we've got a ton of vaccines in the works. Um, the group that's made the most progress so far is the, the Oxford group. They've actually gotten to the point where they're already doing uh, the double blind trials, uh, double blind studies in humans uh, to determine the effectiveness. So they've already mm -hmm. determined this vaccine is safe. They've already determined it works in monkeys, the, the closest, the rhesus, uh, rhesus macaes, the, the closest species of monkeys to us genetically, that works in them, which means all that's left to, is to test to see if it works in humans. Uh, they actually had a head start on this thing is one of the reasons why they, they got, made so much progress. Um, they were working on this vaccine for the MERS virus, out, the MERS mm. outbreak. And mm -hmm. so they were doing that last year, uh, you know, they, they had gotten, uh, like in December or something like that, they were getting success with this thing back then. Um, and this outbreak happened and they just took that same vaccine uh, and put the proteins for this new virus on it. Um, and they try and, and went with it that way. Um, hmm. So they get, we had kind of a head start on creating the vaccine for this thing. And the fact that it spread all over the world and their infections all over mean it's easier to test the vaccine because hmm. Sometimes for like for the MERS outbreak, it's hard to test a vaccine for that because those don't it doesn't pop up very often because this mm. is all over the world right now. You've got, you know, um, you know, tens of millions of people that you can uh, tap into communities is, all over the world. Is that why, you know, because typically for a vaccine to come out and for it to be mass produced takes like something like what, three to five years. And yeah, you know, they're I saying mean, something as soon as September coming out. So how is it that we yeah. skipped years? in this process. Yeah. So there, there was a little bit of luck in the head start that this group had been uh, working on it last year and they were able to rework it. 
uh, this so what a vaccine so first of all what a vaccine is um, uh, it's a what we originally got the idea for a vaccine from smallpox um, uh, smallpox was a really deadly disease uh, and they found that if they uh, you know they develop all these lesions on them right and they found that if you took a little bit from a lesion of a person infected from smallpox and use that to infect someone else it was less deadly they still came down with the disease but instead of a 14% mortality rate, it was a 2% mortality rate. And when you've got a deadly outbreak, 2% is sounding a lot better than 14%. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but then they, they discovered that if you had cowpox, you were immune to smallpox, um, which was weird. They're like, well, uh, and so the, the guy who had, had kind of developed the first vaccine uh, is like, all right, let's try give that a shot. So he took the little bit from this cowpox lesion, put that into someone, uh, and he developed the cowpox symptoms and then recovered from that and then gave him the smallpox and he ended up immune to the, he ended up immune to smallpox. Uh, so the idea is uh, a vaccine is a, is like a, a trial run for your body's immune system, like combat training. It's you like practice. Some, exactly. You give yeah. them something that looks like the virus, very similar, but doesn't cause the same disease, doesn't cause the same symptoms. Your body mm. learns to fight off that, this vaccine, it learns to fight it. And then when the actual virus comes, now all that pe the pieces of your immune system that are set up to specifically fight a disease are set up to specifically fight that virus, which means it doesn't have the ability to cause the same level infection. Um, What's the difference between like a, a vaccine and a flu shot? Yeah, so a flu shot is a vaccine. Okay, um, so the difference between say the flu shot and a vaccine like measles or polio vaccine or something like that, every year the flu shot is, is kind of a guess. We don't actually know which flu strains are going to be the most common, uh, most prevalent ones in a given year. So we study uh, in Australia, we study pig populations because the flu jumps from birds to pigs to humans. That's how the, the flu progressed. So we study these populations and take a guess as to which the most common influenza strains are going to be and then put together a vaccine based on those. Um, so this vaccine the Oxford group uses, the way that this one works is it's a virus but it's, it's a virus that's not capable of replicating in a human. So they use an adenovirus uh, that infects uh, chimpanzees, I believe. So it's an adenovirus that uh, uh, infects chimp chimps. They set up the outside so it looks just like this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. So the outside looks the same. And then when your body starts fighting off this, uh, this kind of dead virus, because it can't infect a human, when your body fights that off, then it develops those antibodies that are specifically specialized to deal with those viruses. And so mm. then in theory, after the, in theory after that, a person will have a much better resistance to the virus. I think, and uh, they're testing it out in I think a thousand people right now. They're starting it off the first week with just a couple people um, and just to see, make sure there's no adverse reactions or something like that. And then they're slowly gonna work up to 500 people-ish uh, with this vaccine and 500 people with kind of like a placebo vaccine, a, a meningitis vaccine. And they'll study those populations for the next couple of months and see if the ones that had the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine did much better than the meningitis vaccine. Um, so so uh, influenza, the flu, it's going to constantly be different each season. Is the COVID going to be similar to the flu or it's going to be like a one-shot vaccine and we're done with this? Like, what, That's what you... a... That's a really good question. Um, we're not sure. We do know that the flu mutates 10 times more, faster than this SARS-CoV-2 virus. So the flu weight, uh, mutates way more. 
Um, we've studied all of the mutations. Like we sequenced this, the genome of this SARS-CoV-2 virus everywhere, all around the world. We're looking at each outbreak. We sequenced the genome. How different is this? Um, glancing through all the genomes that we had a couple of weeks ago, I, don't, I didn't see any that differed by more than 1%. So uh, our estimates are this doesn't mutate as much as the flu. Um, whether it's capable of, the question is, can it mutate enough that it becomes resistant to the vaccine? Um, and we have a little trick that we can use with the, with, the, with the vaccine that can help with that because we are, they're rigging up this vaccine to get your body to produce antibodies specifically to that protein that affects the, the that gets to the ACE2 receptor, which means if the virus mutates so that it's no longer susceptible to that antibody, it's lost its ability to infect the ACE2 receptor. So our hope is if you get just the perfect, uh, perfect antibodies to the thing, you make the right vaccine so your body makes the exact antibodies you need, if the virus does mutate, it loses the ability to actually infect the human and then it doesn't matter at all. Okay. Hmm. That's, our, that's our hope with this design. And uh, I think there's been some talk about whether or not this will be a seasonal kind of a thing, whether it will come back during the fall or during the winter again next year. Is there any yeah. research or evidence that it will be cyclical like this? Or? So as a general rule of thumb, no virus is going to go away until the majority of your population is immune to it. Herd, um, herd, herd immunity? Herd, yeah, herd so immunity. What, 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 what is that exactly? Um, so once you've had a, a virus, your body is immune to it for a, a period of time. Um, for the common cold, that lasts for about one year. Um, for the previous SARS outbreak, we think that lasted about three years of immunity. Um, it kind of depends on how your the antibodies that your body produces this thing and how much of your immune system has actually geared up to fight it. Um, as long as immunity to this thing lasts a couple years and the virus doesn't mutate very much, um, the vaccine should, for the most part, eliminate it. Um, it can all, because it made this jump from bats to humans, it could always, in theory, make that jump again. Um, or whatever animal it was, it jumped from animals to humans. Like uh, MERS is still jumping from animals to humans right now. Mm. Uh, mm. So that's still a regular thing in the Middle East. Um, this could make that jump again. Uh, but if it does again, by then, in theory, we should have a vaccine for it. We'll know, the pro we'll know better treatments for it, so we'll be better prepared to handle it next time. Um, I don't think this is going to be seasonal, just because our, the lockdowns that we are doing, it's slowing the virus, but it's not eliminating it. Um, so even here in the Bay Area, we started our lockdowns, our shelter in place in mid-March. We are still having new cases here, and that's a month and a half, almost two months later. Um, so this virus is going to be around infecting people until maybe like 70, 80% of the population has either been infected or vaccinated to this thing and then, then is immune. And then at that point, the virus starts running out of people to infect, right? Because yeah. I've if I'm infected and four out of the five people around me are resistant to the thing, the chances that I'm going to perfectly connect with that one person who's susceptible to it and infect them is pretty low. Right, um, right. So, so, so the herd immunity can be developed either from... Um, getting infected through natural causes like contact or vaccination mm -hmm. that creates enough of uh, a buildup against it and your body is yeah. practiced enough against it that it just will die out because nobody else is getting it. Exactly. Those are the two, so like, two ways to contract herd immunity. Yeah. 
So okay. like polio, we've got the, we pretty much eliminated the, the disease, right? Because everyone got vaccinated for it. It ran out of people to infect and it pretty much got eliminated. Measles we had eliminated for the most part in the developed world. And then for some reason, everyone decided that the vaccines that we've been using for decades were all of a sudden deadly and stopped wanting to take them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, well, well you know, also we're, we're not entirely sure, you know, can measles mutate to be, you know, slightly resistant to the vaccine? You know, it, it, it's hard to say. Um, no vaccine is 100% effective. Uh, right. For this one that the Oxford group is testing right now, they're shooting for like an 80% effectiveness for it. Okay. If you can get 80% effectiveness, that should be enough for getting that herd immunity status. Yeah. So I guess two quick questions. One, back to uh, the speed of putting out the vaccine. Like it's coming out now, they're saying estimates of the fall. Um, is that just because the Oxford group had a head start or is there just so much more data because it's a global thing that they're able to... What, what moved yeah. that forward? We do have more data. With more populations infected, it's easier to test this thing. And we also cheated a little. Um, normally, in the process of developing a vaccine, each step is super expensive. Um, so you don't go to the next step until you've proved that the first step works, right? So you imagine you're climbing a ladder. You don't step up to the next run until you've got your foot firmly in the first one. Right. Because this situation was so unique and the world was so desperate, we've actually done a couple steps of the ladder at the same time. Oh, um, interesting. Which is more expensive, and it's, it's an expensive gamble, right? They're yeah. already starting to mass produce this vaccine on the off chance that it will work, wow. which is expensive, but it means that it's ready for deployment if it proves effective. As soon as they uh, get the um, research data, yeah. Yeah, so wow. that's why these vaccines are coming out so quickly, because we recognize this is unprecedented. We have greater me medical technology now than we've ever had before. Mm. Um, so we are, we've, we've skipped some of these. Uh, so that's helped us go faster. We knew about this virus back in 2015, so that helped a little bit. We had gotten a head start with the previous SARS virus and the MERS virus, so we knew enough ahead of time that we were able to fast track a lot of this stuff. Mm. Um, now... I do want to throw in a caveat there. Coronaviruses are notoriously difficult to make a vaccine for. We generally have not had much success with them. Uh, very often what happens is you'll try to make a vaccine for a coronavirus, and rather than a vaccine that makes your body fight it off better and, and do better, you actually have an antibody aggravated disease, where when you get infected with the disease, it's actually worse. Uh, I mean, not necessarily fatal, but you know, most of common colds, like you cough, you sneeze, and then that's it. So sometimes when we try to make a vaccine for something like that, the symptoms that you get are actually worse because there's some, if your body doesn't generate the exact right immune response, then it, you have worse, worse symptoms. Um, I don't think that's going to be the case with this one, um, but that's, you know, that is something to keep in mind. That's always um, a risk. Yeah, it's, 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 it's always a risk, uh, but we've already, we're already safety testing this thing. So if that is an issue, we will, we will, we will, figure, we will find that out very quickly. Um, and also, I like starting to mass produce the thing in September doesn't mean it's going to be available for 6 billion people in, in September. And that's something that we have to keep in mind, too. And there is going to ha have to be some hard decisions about where does the priority go for distributing this vaccine? Um, because even if you're making a million doses a day to reach 6 billion people, right? There's a, so who, who gets the priority? 
Um, uh, We're probably going to have to prioritize the high-risk individuals, high-risk communities, um, and those of us who are lower risk, you know, then we'll we'll probably have to wait a turn or, you know, there's also debate back and forth on whether or not, if it takes longer to develop the vaccine, will we reach herd immunity before the vaccine is developed? Because this Mm -hmm. thing is super contagious. Um, And even with shelter in place, it's not clear how long we'll be able to contain this thing and keep it from, like New York's already at, we think something like 20% of the New York City has already had this thing, um, which isn't herd immunity, but you can imagine if you have another New York level outbreak in New York, if they like let things up and another one of those happens, then you're probably looking at like 50% of New York City that's already had this thing. At that point, you might not need a vaccine because so many- You're people- almost there, yeah. Yeah, so we, we don't, yeah, so we don't know yet what percentage of the population needs to have resistance to this in order to establish the herd immunity. Can you um, just like one, I guess on my end, one last super technical question <laughs> for you to make like a clarification on. So there's the vaccine and then there's also been all sorts of news over the last week with, I'm going to say the drug wrong, but remdesivir, is that right? Remdesivir. Yeah. Yeah. Remdesivir. Yeah. Can you make the distinction between the vaccine and remdesivir? Cause I've heard some people, conflate those two remdesivir is not a vaccine but right. what does it do can you give us a little bit of a yeah. breakdown on so, what that is? Uh, yeah so a vaccine is preparing your body ahead of time to fight off the disease so your immune system's already set ready to go uh remdesivir is an example of one of the antiviral medications that we're trying out uh it works by preventing that once you're infected with the virus it makes it more difficult for the virus to replicate which means you've got a person with an active viral infection the virus is only dangerous if it starts killing off a lot of your cells, right? And the only way it can do that is by repli- infecting a cell, replicating, and then breaking out of that cell and infecting more cells. The way uh, these antivirals work is they interfere with the ability of that virus to replicate inside you. So once you're infected and the virus is replicating, you take an antiviral and the virus starts replicating more slowly. And it gives your body more time to generate that immune response necessary to fight it off. Uh, mm-hmm. So an antiviral therapy is something that you would give someone after they're infected to help their body fight the infection off. A vaccine is something you give someone before the infection to prepare your body ahead of time to fight off the disease. Would it be fair to compare remdesivir with something like Tamiflu? Are those similar? Yeah, Tamiflu is, a, is an antiviral. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Different so, uh, viral strains, but a similar concept. Yeah, same, same concept. Got it. Thank you. Uh, can we just give some advice on um, next steps? Like what do the next couple of months look like, uh, especially as certain uh, bans will be lifted from the state mm-hmm. and federal. And then also uh, as people are getting, an- uh, starting to like lose their cool, start protesting. Um, so so what, what, what do you think is the best course of action uh, next couple of months? Yeah, there's a lot of back and forth in the medical community about this. Um, there's not really 100% consensus on what the best strategy is. And, and this is part of the problem. And not just from an economic perspective, because like the economics are one thing, but even from a health perspective, uh, having a huge percentage of your population staying at home on the couch watching Netflix is not the best for our health outcomes. Um, we need to be outdoors. We need to have sunlight. Like when we start heart, had it, uh, getting results of like reports of the strokes and stuff like that in the young patients, on the one hand, we were thinking, oh, is it the virus? But on the other hand, the other major risk factors for developing blood clots and strokes, lack of physical activity, poor diet, uh, stress, depression, 
right? And what do we have more of now that all the shelter in place stuff has been put into place, right? More right, people right. staying at home, less activity. Um, so uh, we think right now, we're going off of the assumption right now that this thing is very uh, contagious in asymptomatic individuals. Um, we can't prove it, but there's a lot of scenarios where that makes the most sense. Uh, New York had the worst outbreak of anywhere, and they've got that huge mass transit system. Um, and ridership for that mass transit didn't drop very much. So that's a huge, I think we're probably going to see a major decline in that type of mass transit use over the next mm. few months um, until, until most of the population is resistant to this thing. Anything where you're cramming a ton of people into a crowded space like that is going to be a, a recipe for disaster. Um, in terms of gatherings, uh, like the, the, the classic case study was early in March. Uh, you had, I believe it was in Washington, there was a, a church choir practice. Um, and they had this choir practice. No one had, there were 60 people there. No one had any symptoms. Everyone was keeping their distance. And then a couple weeks later, they find out that 45 out of the 60 are testing positive for the virus. And several of them ended up in the hospital. A couple died. Um, no one had any symptoms. Um, and they were keeping their distance. Um, it was indoors, but um, so did they, was there one person sick that infected everyone else there somehow just by singing? Uh, were there multiple people there that were sick and they infected other people? Did all those people get sick independently and it was just a coincidence? Um, right now we're functioning off of the assumption that with enough uh, that there's enough virus present in like the little respiratory droplets that are coming out of you that if you've got an enclosed environment that's crowded uh, You have the potential to infect other people. So that's where a lot of the wearing masks comes into play but Like mm -hmm. if you're going to be indoors if you're going to be interacting with other people uh, We think that by wearing a mask It's going to severely limit the ability for you to spread it to other people because it's going to trap a lot of those respiratory drops droplets in you um, you still have the potential to contaminate other people. Like if your mask is infected because you're talking into it, coughing into it, and you touch your mask, now you got virus on your finger, right? You touch a surface, now there's virus on that surface. Someone else touches it. So there's even with masks, if people aren't uh, wearing them properly, um, you still have the potential to infect other people. Um, I think probably a good going forward strategy is shift as much as we can outdoors. Um, Wind dispersing this thing is going to be a, a good benefit uh, because even if you are putting out virus in the air, the outside air is a much more wide environment, right? The air is going to blow it. It's going to blow it out of the way. Uh, viruses tend to not do very well in sunlight. Uh, I, they, were, they were sharing that data too. What's interesting is we actually have identified a unique oh, UV light frequency um, that is short enough that it doesn't cause uh, skin, can it can't get through your skin, so it doesn't cause skin cancer or eye damage the way normal UV light does. It's uh, not, it's too long to be ionizing, like it's not as dangerous as, X it's not X-ray or gamma radiation, but it can kill the virus. Hmm. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, these, light these UV light bulbs that do this are expensive. They're like $500 a pop. Um, but they're not as expensive as shutting down an entire business for five months. <laughs> yeah. Right. Point well taken. Yeah, yeah. So the FDA has <laughs> approved. Yeah. So the FDA has approved these things to try them out in hospitals uh, and see if that helps with infection spread. If that works, you could put those every grocery store, every school. You could put those things everywhere, and they wouldn't just help with 
this virus. They would help with influenza and all the other viruses wow. too. Um, that is something that might come out of this. Um, they, were work they were thinking that it would be years for this to come out, but because of the desperation, because, because of, they have been working on this for years and they were slowly going through the FDA approval process. Then this came along and they're like, hey, let's, <laughs> let's speed this up a let, little let, bit. Let there be light. Yeah, uh, exactly. well, there you go. You hinted at uh, people miswearing their mask. Uh, how do we avoid miswearing our mask? How do like what, what what's some safety protocol? Um, yeah. So uh, probably our best strategy going forward uh, is if you want to properly avoid contaminating other people. Whenever you're going into an indoors setting or something or a setting where you're going to be interacting with other people, at that point you put the mask on. Uh, and then you use hand sanitizer or soap wash or something, wash your hands, and now your hands are clean, right? You put the mask on, you're blocking anything coming out, and your hands are clean. Um, and now you're interacting with your environment. Uh, interacting with your environment, now your hands are contaminated with the environment, right? So before you take your mask off, you wash your hands or hand sanitize your hands again, then take the mask off, and, uh, and then you're, you're good. Um, that's that's what we that's probably going to be a good ballpark strategy for going forward with this thing. Um, can I just can uh, I just jump in to clarify the 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 strategy is to assume that you have it, right? Right. You can't do anything to protect yourself if somebody else has it. Correct. Like the mask uh, watching, doesn't help you from that. Um, probably not. Um. Well, I, so I shouldn't say that. It if, if this aerosolized uh, aspect of it is a thing that we actually have to worry, like originally I was thinking this was just gonna be someone coughs on a surface, you touch the surface and that's how you infect yourself. If it is aerosolized, um, if the mask has a waterproof barrier in it, like that's what a surgical mask has, like uh, the, that they use in the hospital. There's two different masks in the hospital. There's the N95s that are designed to have a perfect seal that prevents anything from getting in. And then you've got your simple surface level surgical masks. And that the outside is waterproof, so nothing's getting through. And the inside is absorbent. So if you cough into the thing, it absorbs any respiratory droplets coming out of you. Um, so it's designed to keep a, to minimize the potential for a person to get infected and to infect others. You okay. do you have a mask with that same type of feature, it will offer some protection. Indoors, it's not clear if that's going to be enough. If you're in a room full of sick people in the ICU, um, we have tested the air in the ICU for presence of the virus and in the areas where people are coughing, they're really sick, it is there. Um, we don't have the ability to test that for asymptomatic patients because who do you test, right? Who do you test, if, yeah. Yeah, you have no idea who's infected or not. So hmm. we don't yet have the ability, we, we can't do the experiments that we really wanna do, which is get a whole room full of asymptomatic people and see how much virus is in the air. If we could do that experiment, that would tell us a lot, but we can't. So we're guessing right now. Interesting. Um, so in theory, if everyone's wearing masks, that helps prevent the virus from getting into the air, which prevents transmission. That's what we're guessing right now. That's the, that's the theory that we're going with for the next couple of months. Wow. Is there a way to make like a makeshift mask for people who don't have like a doctor mask or, or like how long yeah, do yeah. those masks last? Before, uh, also uh, they last, yeah, so I cut up an old shirt uh, and just used and made a mask out of that. Uh, those would last indefinitely uh, because uh, like even if you were worried about the mask getting contaminated from the environment, you just wash it with soap and wa uh, wash it and then you're, you're good to if a cloth mask, you just wash it. You'd want to make a mask with a couple of layers 
So that way, if like there's something in the air, it gets caught in the first layer and not the back layer uh, that's get in contact with your mouth. Um, but yeah, any barrier between your mouth and the environment, your mouth and nose. So you want to cover both your mouth and the nose with something like that. Anything like that should be enough as long as you're washing your hands regularly um, mm. to, to minimize exposure. And we don't know if that alone is sufficient. Like we still don't know, is a full-on shelter in place necessary or is all we need a public that's aware that this thing is contagious and everyone wearing masks and everyone washing their hands every couple, you know, every 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, what? you know, it's, oh, sorry. What are you? No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So like, it's interesting, like in the back of the lab, like you're working, you know, cause I see people in the, around like wearing gloves and wearing masks and gloves don't really help you. Even in like the microbiology lab and some hospital labs, a lot of the people there that are working with the bacteria, like they'll streak the bacteria on plates. A lot of the times they don't wear gloves mm -hmm. because they want to, they want to be able to feel, they want to know if they touch something. And so rather than wearing gloves, they just wash their hands compulsively. Like mm. every, you know, every time they do anything, they wash their hands afterwards. Mm. Um, mm. So gloves probably, you know, on the spectrum of PPE that we have, gloves are probably less useful here. Um, and it's really, we, we think it's really going to be masks going forward that are going to be helpful. As long as we don't treat the mask as something that makes us immune to the thing. Like we still right. need to be yeah. practicing yeah. some common sense with that. But I, I so, wonder, yeah. like on a practical level, like full circle back to churches like what will church look like for the next couple of months like if we release the shelter in place and june july summer months we're coming back to meet together in churches it's an enclosed space it's you know in our community it's a i mean most church communities they do at least have some elder uh, elder population so there's yeah. at-risk people um what is so it going to look like at yeah. So yeah. So the the problem is we we default to that back to that choir case in Washington, mm -hmm. where we don't know how many people showed up to that practice sick. None of them have symptoms, but walking away, forty five of the sixty were infected. Yeah. Um, and that and that singing right in church we go and we sing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't so know ventilation. Yeah. Does ventilation help at all? I mean, like yeah, vental, open windows. Yeah, open windows ventilation helps. If everyone wearing is wearing a mask, we think that would help. Um, but I think because of the risk for the next couple of months, I I have I have a suspicion that a lot of us, even if some of us are those of us that are young and healthy and aren't really worried about it, are going into the church service. I think our church services are going to be much smaller until most of the population has had this thing or is immune to the thing. Hmm. Um, that's my uh, that's. Just, so there's two sides. There's the medical side and there's also the public mindset side. So I think the public mindset side in and of itself, uh, well, I mean, you've got two. You've got two extremes. You've got those that are convinced that this is the Black Plague and we're all going to die. And you've got those that are convinced this is all a government hoax and the virus isn't real, right? Yeah. Um, and there are churches that are predominantly one or the other. So <laughs> yeah. Those that are predominantly this thing is, is super dangerous. We all yeah. have like... For all like my, my Sunday school class, all my Sunday school parents, the thing that they were worried about is, are my kids going to get it? I'm scared. I don't want my kids going to this or that. And so right. for me, talking to them, it was a lot of, hey, don't worry. We've got this under control. This doesn't seem to infect kids. You don't have to be, you know, stress level 100 right, right now. I would not give that same advice to someone who is convinced that this is a government hoax and the virus isn't real. I yeah. think there are a lot of... Uh, churches from the other christians i've talked with 
there do seem to be a lot of churches that are filled much more with people that are, this is a government hoax and it's not real. Um, those are the churches that I would be most concerned about uh, mm. because, because of that, that, that church choir example. Like if the, you can and the carefree attitude, right? Yeah, the carefree. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a choir that was taking precautions. Like they mm. were keeping separate from each other. They were not hugging. They were not doing any of that stuff. Um, mm. And still 75% of the group seems to have gotten infected in that one sitting, right? Mm. Uh, so that could happen in any setting where you've got a lot of people gathered together, all singing together. What about um, like, I mean, we like, it's part of the Christian tradition that we, we eat together. It's one of our sacraments, the, the Lord's yeah. Supper. So what about food? I mean, like a lot of churches have coffee hours, a lot of communities, that's how they fellowship, how they connect is over food. Is there any, any indication that ingesting food or sharing food would, uh, would cultivate I the virus? I mean, no more than just any other physical contact, right? Like if I've got virus on my hand and I shake your hand, now it's on your hand. Um, yeah. Uh, like uh, this virus does not survive. Uh, this virus survives very well on smooth surfaces. It does not survive very well on porous surfaces. Like cardboard, it only lasts for like a day. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I don't know if anyone's tested how long the virus survives on a sandwich. Uh, mm -hmm. But like, the, you know, the kitchen counter in your, in your church kitchen or something like that someone coughs or someone's infected, they get it on that. It could survive for a good couple of days on a, on a stainless steel, you know, kitchen counter type surface in the kitchen there. Mm. Um, I, do, I, I do think just for wisdom's sake, until we know the primary route of transmission for this thing, um, even once the, 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 this ban is lifted, I, like I, talking with my church council yesterday, we were meeting with the mindset that, we're going to do a lot of live streaming. There's going to be a lot of people, even after the after shelter in place is lifted, a lot of people are going to be uh, watching from home. Even if we gather together, it's going to be uh, limited uh, gatherings with people that we know have been well isolated and no one's had any symptoms. Um, uh, that's probably going to be our uh, that's probably going to be if shelter in place is lifted in say June and there are very few cases that's probably how we're going to be handling the summer. And we just have to mm. keep a tight eye on where our levels go from. Mm. Um, uh, like the, the standards that uh, the federal government has put forward is like 14 days of declining cases. Um, that the, the number that we really want to be looking at is how many people are currently in the hospital with the thing. Uh, because that tells you, if, we're, if you're guessing that 5% of the people that come down with this virus end up in the hospital, you just take how many people came down when has uh, showed up in the hospital this week, multiply that by like 10 or 20. And that's how many people got infected this week, right? Because mm -hmm. if 5% of the people show up in the hospital, then that means you probably had a bunch of people that were infected that have no symptoms that may or may not be contagious. Right. That, that's the, the question going forward. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, the more well ventilated the space, the safer you are. The more isolated everyone has been and confident that uh, they haven't been infected, the better you are. The more everyone is wearing masks, the better you are. Um, hmm. So all of those are levels of, of safety that we can add on to stuff. Um, and we'll probably get some hints, like here in, in the Bay Area, some businesses are opening up this week. Like the, hmm. the most of the shelter, a lot of the shelter in place is still in effect, but we're opening up some stuff, especially to like outdoor activities, outdoor business operations. If we can have business operations where everyone's wearing a mask and everyone's keeping their distance and there's minimal chance for infection. 
um, going forward. And let's see what things look like in the month of May in the Bay Area. Um, mm. I think a lot of it also depends on how these treatments come out. Um, remdesivir was the first result. And it may not have looked very impressive to a lot of people because it, the, the results are like, all right, it decreased your hospitalization time from 15 days to 11 days. And it decreased your case fatality rate from 11 point something percent to 8%. And that doesn't look like that, that much. But keep this in mind, you've got a bed in a hospital and a patient is in there for 15 days, right? So that one bed in a month can treat two patients, right? 15 days for one and 15 days for the other. Now you've decreased the amount of time they need to be in the hospital to, from 15 days to 10 days. Now all of a sudden that same bed can treat three people, right? Right, so right. By doing that, you've increased the capacity of your hospitals by 50%. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was, this was our first, this is our first coming out of any right. ki kind of proof that any medication works. It's I, like when I was talking to someone else, I would say this is the equivalent of being in the dark and blindfolded and throwing a knife and actually hitting a target. Right? <laughs> You're not going to hit the bullseye, but the fact that you hit a target at all tells you that you yeah. are in a better spot than you thought you were. Right. Um, we've got a ton of other medications that are in the works now that are already in the stage of trials that remdesivir was in. I think as we're going to come through, some of those are going to look just as good and we're going to get more and more steps in place. Um, so I think that's going to be a huge factor. If we have a medication that keeps people out of the hospital, like that's the big thing, like uh, operation in the, in the ICU for two, three weeks is a huge burden on the healthcare. Um, and once they end up on a ventilator, survival rates are less than 50%. If we have uh, a treatment, if, we, if with the blood thinners and with the antivirals, we're keeping the majority of the cases out of the hospital, we might no longer care whether or not anyone gets infected with the thing. Because right now the problem is it's, you know, got a case or guessing the case fatality rate of somewhere around 0.5 or an infect, infectious fatality rate, somewhere in the ballpark of half, of, half a percent. Um, and those patients that need ICU care, it goes for like two, three weeks. If we reduce that intensive care to like one day, like all it takes, or remdesivir treatments are, are five-day treatments. They found that that was working for, to keep these get these patients out of the hospital. So even just reducing it from three weeks to five days and reducing the, and it keeps most of the people from developing these strokes and blood clots, we, and we make enough of it for everyone, we might care less about whether or not we get infected. I think that May is going to be a, a huge trend. There's a lot of unknowns going into May, and I think there's going to be a lot of knowns coming out of May. I think that I think May is going to be a huge month because a lot of these trials are going to come back. We're going to get a better picture of how this is spreading. As some places st are starting to lift their restrictions, they're res lifting some restrictions but not others. And so now we're going to be able to compare one reason one region to another. All right, this hmm. is a rural area. Almost no one's interacting. Do we need any restrictions there at all? Hmm. Probably not. This is a crowded city. Everyone uses their mass transit. Do we need to keep the mass transit shut down? Probably, right? So those are the, the, the questions we're going to be answering during the month of May. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is definitely a pivotal month. Um, yeah, we'll see. A lot of the unknowns hopefully will all be answered, like, like you said. And I think it's just important, like you also reminded us to avoid the two extremes of thinking this is the bubonic plague and also this is like some crazy conspiracy. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's really hard to walk that fine line of reason. Uh, yeah. and I think, uh, it's important for all of us to just make sure that we're, we're cautious, but not fearful. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, we, we, we're, we're taking all the necessary steps to, to, to care for other people, even though we may not be showing any signs of, of this. Yeah, so I, I, I'm more on the optimistic side of things. Because the majority of this population seems insanely resistant to this virus, as near as we can tell, uh, I'm guessing that we're gonna have more luck with the antiviral therapies and some of these treatments than some other people are thinking. Because it seems like our body, our immune system doesn't need that much to fight this thing off. Uh, most people don't develop serious symptoms. Most people don't even know they have it. Um, so uh, I think if, if that ends up being the pattern and that ends up being the case, we get some good medications that we can easily give to people. The more people that get infected with this thing and recover, the slower it spreads. Right. Which means even as the, once they get to the point where they start lifting restrictions in New York, even if they have more cases, it's not going to spread as quickly because A, more people are resistant to the thing, and now much more people are going to be cautious, right? There's a lot more mask wearing. There's a right. lot more, if you can work from home, work from home, like all that stuff. But Yeah, it strikes me as uh, probably a good way to wrap everything up and end things on a high note. Um, could you maybe walk us out with like two or three points of good news to kind of hand us a little bit of that optimism you have? Uh, maybe two or three uh, you know, hopeful signs of things getting better down the road to kind of pique people's interest and surprise, uh, give them a little bit of hope moving forward? Yeah. No, I, I think there's a lot of reason to be hope for this thing. One is we have more tools at our disposal than we ever had it before. Um, uh, researchers from all over the world dropped everything that they're doing right now, and they focused all their efforts solely on this. Um, like uh, UCSF, uh, they have a uh, they have a bunch of labs over there. Uh, there was one group of their labs where they all stopped everything they were doing just to study uh, the way that the, the proteins in our cell that this virus hijacks. Uh, this work would normally take like two to three years to do. They did it in like three weeks. Wow. So we are making faster progress on this thing than we've ever made on any other disease before. We already have clinical trials coming back that are showing that medications are helpful. Uh, we already have antibody studies that are coming back that show the majority of people who come down with this thing don't develop, don't have any serious problems. They don't need hospitalization. They don't have serious symptoms. Which and there's something different between those patients and the ones that get sick. We hopefully in this month we're going to figure out what that difference is, and we will figure out how to apply that protection to the high risk population. Um, we've got a vaccine that we're developing faster than ever, um, and even if we can't give it to six billion people in September. The ability to give it to our high-risk population makes us safer than, uh, than ever. Um, we've got uh, <clears throat> more technologies now than ever to reduce community spread, especially if, uh, like this UV light technology, the UV light bulbs, if we put them everywhere, we put them in all our schools, all our restaurants, all our grocery stores, uh, that massively reduces our chance for widespread infection. All these tools are in place. We are testing them now. Uh, I think by the end of by the end of May, we'll have a much more complete picture on which of these tools are the best ones to use, um, and let, let's see what happens during the summer. I, I think all those reasons are are important for us to to. to uh, I think all those reasons are are reasons to give us some optimism in this thing, um, and then and in the end, you know, as Christians, we know God's ultimately in control of all of this. It's not like this is the first plague to hit the world. Uh, we've seen plenty of plagues. Uh, there are plagues in the Bible, right? Uh, we always, you know, we get through on the other side. We put our faith in God. We trust in God. Um, and we do our best to help others. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of folks in need right now, and we're going to be mindful of that. We're going to be 
helping those who are in need and making sure no one, no one falls through the cracks. Wonderful. Awesome. Wonderful. Th thank you, Dr. Matt Silverman. This was a really enlightening conversation. Uh, I hope to continue the conversation maybe after May, we could get an update and see uh, what, what everything has happened. Uh, sure, but this is yeah. super insightful um, just to just go through everything in such a thorough manner and just telling us what, what all these different groups are doing to, to combat this. And I, what, one of the cool things about what I'm witnessing is the kind of sense of unity among uh, different types of people coming together to fight this common enemy and tackling it from all the different angles. Uh, so th thank you. I, I've reached the end of my iced coffee. Uh, just yeah. one more sip. And uh, <laughs> uh, just thank you for joining us. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I thank you all for listening on the Christ and Coffee podcast. Uh, stay caffeinated. Remember to not uh, be fearful, but act in faith. And uh, we're going to get through this. Uh, let's say there's, no, there's no reason not to be optimistic. It's just another hurdle in the way of, of the human story. So uh, let's all be wise and help each other out, especially those who are in need. Uh, let's, let's, let's all do our job to, to, to join hands and help one another. Thank you for watching, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Silverman. Uh, this has been a real delight. Uh, stay caffeinated, everyone.